We show that because we're obviously beginning a series on 1 Corinthians today. And as we begin to preach through this book, with everything in me, I encourage you to read this letter as many times as you can over the next seven months. Through August of this year, Lord willing, we'll preach Sunday after Sunday with rare exception, passage after passage right through the book of 1 Corinthians. And just to quantify that as what I think is both a realistic challenge, but also even more than that, a very edifying, helpful challenge. Make it your business to try to read through this letter at least once per month, seven times over the next seven months. And I trust that that would yield tremendous benefits in your soul as we come to the Sunday preaching. Have you ever been part of a church that had problems? I mean, not like this church, you know, the perfect one. But all those other churches out there that, that aren't like us. That's foolish talk. We, know, we laugh because we know how foolish it is. It can be something that sounds like an empty mantra to say it this way. Every church has problems. No church is perfect. Let's ask more specifically. What are our problems? How have you undiscerningly, like unwittingly, not on purpose, contributed to the problem? How have I? It's easy to think that the other people are the problem. But what about you? What about me? Every church does have problems. What does God's Word have to say about the remedy to the challenges that churches face? What does He offer? God obviously diagnoses the problems perfectly. He is the divine physician. He doesn't need an x-ray or an MRI or a CAT scan. He sees to the bottom of your heart instantly and always. And so as the great physician, He also always prescribes the perfect remedy. The book of 1 Corinthians is God's words through the Apostle Paul, both pastoral, he had been their pastor for 18 months after planting the church, not only pastoral but apostolic, God's chosen messenger. The book of 1 Corinthians is God's pastoral and apostolic response through Paul to the problems in the church at Corinth. You need to understand that as you read this letter, it is a reactive letter. Not proactive, but reactive. Paul has heard, you see, about this church. I mentioned that on his, uh, I mentioned that he was with them for 18 months, that's a year and a half. Many of you have been here for less than that, and you already know many of our problems. You don't have to be with the church a long time to have an accurate read on them, but Paul had been with them for a year and a half. It was on his second missionary journey. And now Paul is pastoring a church in Ephesus and he's hearing reports from his friends and loved ones at the church at Corinth about the issues that the church is facing. So he reactively writes to them having heard about these issues and he prescribes to them the remedy that God offers. 1 Corinthians is at least Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he refers to a previous letter which obviously we've lost and then in 2 Corinthians Paul refers to a tearful letter which is obviously not 1 Corinthians so Paul had written to them at least four times we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians which are at least in the order 2nd and 4th Corinthians if you're tracking with that but Paul loved these people he was constantly ministering the gospel to them even when he was away from them. 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to the church that's dealing with each specific issue that he had received in the report that came to him. So again, I want you to think not about them only, but about us also. What are our problems? How do you contribute to them? What is God's diagnosis and prescription? The reason our sermon series in 1 Corinthians is titled The Gospel for Life is because that's exactly what 1 Corinthians does. Meaning every single sinful issue 
in the broken church at Corinth is addressed by Paul in this letter with the exact same solution. The gospel. Paul shows them how the gospel, and I've used that phrase a lot, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Do you know what that is? Do you know how that message applies to every problem in your heart and every problem in our church? Can you take spiritual mumbo-jumbo and see that if it is true to the gospel that God saps out of the gospel what you must have to live a God-pleasing life before His face and with His people. Paul never goes away from the gospel. He never offers his opinion. Rather, he points them consistently back to Christ. Back to the cross. Back to the empty tomb as the only solution for health in the body of Christ. I believe that Paul would say to the church at Corinth, if you don't want Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. There was a report that came to Paul about divisions in the church. In chapter 1, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, that's Peter, the real spiritual people, I'm of Christ. How does Paul apply the gospel to that problem? 1 Corinthians 1.13, he says, is Christ divided? You can't have a divided church if you have a unified Jesus. But if you have two or three Jesuses, then be as divided as you want to be. But if there's only one Jesus, you cannot be lacking unity. Concerning sex and sexuality. How does the gospel apply to that? Corinth was a debaucherous city, and that is a generous assessment. Just like our culture, just like this neighborhood, Corinth was intoxicated. They were drunk with sexual immorality. The temple to Aphrodite had been erected in the middle of their city. That's the sex deity in Greek culture, in the middle of their city. Not only that, they were a port city on the Mediterranean. And as a port city, they were on this little isthmus, this little body of land that jutted out into the Mediterranean between Italy and Asia. And travelers would frequent Corinth as a place to exploit their sexual immorality. Travelers from far and wide all across the world would come to indulge in their lewd practices that Corinth benefited from and that had crept into the church. And Paul's answer to them is, how does the Gospel apply? Clean out the old leaven. This is in the context of sexual purity. Clean out the old leaven. 1 Corinthians 5-7. Why? Because Christ has been sacrificed. For what? Your sexual sin. You can't live in sexual sin if you hang on to a pure Jesus. Number three, food sacrificed to idols. How does the Gospel apply? 1 Corinthians 8, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. And he goes on to say later in that chapter, And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Jesus. How does the Gospel apply? To issues of preference and Christian liberty in the church? If you sin against your brother or sister, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, quote, you sin against Jesus. That's how the Gospel applies. Concerning the church assembly. Everything being done orderly the misuse of the spiritual gifts that's so famously known in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, here's how the Gospel applies, for as the body is one and has many members, so also the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.12 So the issue of divisions over spiritual gifts is foolish because there's only one Jesus. Concerning fifth, the final main issue that Paul touches, the resurrection, which is the most important, and he saves it for last on purpose. For that reason, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, 
If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. He obviously applies the gospel to that issue in the church. So I hope that you can already see right at the outset of this sermon series, when I'm, I'm not going to do that every week, but for the next seven months, whoever stands behind this book in this series is going to tell you unapologetically the gospel's the answer. I just showed you how in every one of the five major issues, the gospel's the answer. But guess what? The same is true for us. The divisions that exist here, the sin issues that exist here, the schisms, the problems, the preferential treatment, anything that distracts us from Jesus, the same solution. And so as Paul would say to Corinth, I believe, we can say to one another, if you don't want Jesus... This should be a place that you don't find much encouragement because He's all we have to offer. The question for the church has always been and will always remain, how does the sufficiency of Jesus apply to my heart in this situation? This would be an easy sermon series to say, oh man, I wish so-and-so hadn't missed today. It will be an easy sermon series for that. But the question has always been and will always remain, how does the sufficiency of Jesus, can you hear that phrase? The enoughness of Jesus apply to my heart. My heart. My heart in this situation. The job of the Gospel minister has always been to hold out the beauty and grace of Jesus to hurting and wayward saints, churches, and sinners. This is why our series for the next seven months is titled, the gospel for life. If you and I want to live in God's world, God's way, as God's redeemed people for God's own glory, then 1 Corinthians is a wonderful place for us to spend some prayerful meditation. We must have Jesus as the very center of this church if we would be glorifying to God. Do you want something or someone else to take His place? We must have Jesus as the center of this church if we would be bringing glory to God and good to our fellow man. Well, with that in mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you've got to listen a lot more quickly if we're going to cover some territory. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, called as, as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you, for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Meet me at the throne of grace once again as we ask for God's help. Oh, Father, just a few minutes to try to have our minds saturated and our hearts affected by one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible. We ask for your Holy Spirit to plant this word deep in us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's two parts to verses 1 to 9. Maybe you caught that as we read it. Verses 1 to 3 is a greeting. Verses 4 to 9 is a prayer. If you look at verses 1 to 3, you'll find very quickly that the greeting is radically God-centered. He's saying hello to them, 
in the most radically God-centered way. And then in verses 4 to 9, as the apostle loves to do, he tells the church at Corinth how he's praying for them. But not only how he's praying, it is a gospel-saturated prayer. So in verses 1 to 3, you have a God-centered greeting. In verses 4 to 9, you have a gospel-saturated prayer. In the God-centered greeting, there are three parts to it. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Verse 1, it comes from God's messengers. Verse 2, it's extended to God's church. And verse 3, it's filled with God's kindness. One at a time. This God-centered greeting, verse 1, comes from God's messengers, plural. Did you notice that this comes not only from Paul, but how often do we hear, oh, 1 Corinthians, yeah, Sosthenes. Messengers, plural. Verse 1 says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So this God-centered greeting, right out of the gate, comes from God's messengers. Paul knew from his time in Corinth that there were those who wanted to discredit his ministry in an attempt to discredit his message. So instead of entering into the fray in his opening paragraph about all the naysayers, he gets into that later, including in 2 Corinthians, especially chapters 2-7. to Instead of entering into that fray immediately, he doesn't want to point to them, he wants to point to him. And so what he does is he asserts Look at this, verse 1. Called, apostle, will of God. Do you see that in verse 1? Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The word apostle means sent out one, messenger. It in Scripture refers to God's select men who were called in a unique time to carry a unique role in the advance of God's kingdom. There are no more of those today. Apostleship was relegated initially to the twelve, eleven of which were faithful, minus Judas. And then in the book of Acts, we find the replacement for Judas and the lot fell to Matthias, but Paul speaks of himself as the apostle untimely born. And so Paul is the last of the apostles in terms of calling, and it's a select messenger of God. They're not infallible in everything they do, but when they act on behalf of the churches in the name of God, they write, they preach, they minister under a unique spirit inspiration. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul, next word, called as an apostle. So his argument is right in the opening phrase, if you disagree with what I'm saying, your fight is with God, not with me. An apostle of Jesus Christ that's possessive by the will of God. That's from which it originates. But then he goes on to say in this phrase, by the will of God, he's packing down a lot of information into a little space. Because see, he had spent a lot of time with these Corinthians. They knew his story. He was a God-hater. He was an insolent rejecter of Christianity. Uh, scripture says he persecuted the capital W way. He hated Jesus and anybody who had anything to do with Jesus. And he made it his mission to stamp out Christianity in the known world. He even received a decree on his request to go as far as he possibly could in the known world to stamp out Christianity any and everywhere. You know the story. He was Saul of Tarsus who breathed threats against the church. He was binding Christians. He was breaking apart families. He was carrying people away into imprisonment because of their faith in Christ. And as we know, he stood helping to accommodate the death of Stephen who was stoned to death as Saul of Tarsus held their garments so that they could get a little better dexterity in their throw of the stones to kill Stephen. He was a murderer. But now he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, by the will of God. They knew his story. And they knew that when he was on his way to Damascus, his conversion and his calling, in Paul's case, Saul's, was simultaneous. He didn't go looking for God. That's the point. God called me by his own will. And I'm his representative. I'm his ambassador. And what I'm saying to you is coming right out of the heart of the living God. And he goes on to say, and Sosthenes, our brother. So our first little consideration under God-centered greeting is there are two messengers. Sosthenes, but what does he refer to him as? Two little words. Our brother. 
This is so significant. Sosthenes, as you may know, doesn't appear anywhere else in this letter. Maybe he was the emanuensis, the scribe who wrote down what Paul was saying, kind of the secretary that wrote the letter. We don't know all the details, but we do know this. That Sosthenes, according to Acts 18, when the church at Corinth was started, was the leader of the synagogue. Chapter 18, verse 17. This is a Jewish official offering the sacrifices, performing the priestly duty, an official leader in the synagogue. Acts 18.17 says, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. This man had come to Christ, listening to Paul's message. Paul goes in, as he was customarily doing, he'd go into the synagogue, he'd preach the gospel. If they rejected him, he'd go to the Gentiles. And apparently when Paul goes into Corinth, he does his routine. He goes straight first to the synagogue. He says, hey, all you religious people, i got some really good news for you. There's a Savior. There's a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Apparently Sosthenes believed the gospel. And as a reward for his faith, his companions took hold of him and beat him in front of the judgment seat. And Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, right out of the gate, Sosthenes, I love this, our brother. Guess what Corinth was not? a Jewish city. This is a Gentile city. This is a Roman province. First sentence, all you divided Corinthians, picking all your favorite people, all that disunity in your church because you love you some you. Sosthenes, Jewish religious leader, that's our brother. to these Gentile Corinthians, if you only love people who are mirror images of you, and you think you love Jesus, heaven will be a miserable place for you to spend an eternity. For there, all will be perfectly unified in love with Christ's diverse church to the degree that God is unified with Himself. That's not a hope so. That's a guarantee based on John 17. Jesus already prayed with positive confidence that all of his people will be perfectly unified one day. And Corinth can either get on that train or they can get off the boat. But you're not headed to heaven if you can't live in unity with the people of God. Second consideration in this greeting comes from verse 2. Not only the greeting, God-centered greeting coming from God's messengers, but it's coming to God's church. Verse 2 says, to the church of God which is at Corinth. I love that little phrase, the church of God. I'm not trying to take you into a semantics class, but that's a genitive word, which means possessive. It belongs to God. It's at Corinth, but that's His church. You see, Corinth was littered with so-called the gatherings of the gods, like the temple of Aphrodite that I mentioned, and many, many other Greek and pagan gods and goddesses had their own shrines and temples. The temple of Aphrodite boasted of being the shrine to the god of sensuality and sexuality. The amphitheater was also right in the middle of Corinth, and guests would regularly come from far and wide who boasted of being able to soothe the human ear as tongues of the gods. And they would charge a premium for their front row seats, and they would wax eloquent with their oratory skills. But Paul wanted this little fledgling church to know, as believers in Jesus Christ, probably meeting in a back room or something like that at Sister Priscilla and Brother Aquila's house. He wanted them to know that not that big amphitheater, not that big temple to Aphrodite, not those impressive edifices out there made out of brick and mortar, that these people are the ecclesia of God. They belong to God, and God belongs to them. If you look at the verse, you can see four descriptions that Paul gives of this church that belongs to God. These are all in verse 2. He's, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is a sermon that I would love to preach, an entire sermon on this one little phrase, but we're not going to do it today. This is about their positional holiness. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Do you see that little phrase? It means holy and set apart. Paul is clearly alluding to Old Testament Israel. You, little church at Corinth, belong to God. You are already 
holy. Why all this sexual sin? You see what he's doing? He's stacking the deck on the front end with the conclusions. And he's telling them, you belong to God. You're already positionally set apart. He says second to them that they are saints by calling. Now that's not positional holiness, that's practical holiness. You see it in verse 2? That's two phrases, not one. Sanctified in Christ, saints, holy ones, by calling. Yes, God has positionally declared you righteous in Jesus. You belong to God. You have all the righteousness of Christ credited to your account on the basis of no work of your own, owing all to the greatness of Christ. You're positionally holy. But you're also saints by calling. If you're positionally holy, Paul's saying, prove it practically holy that's why we say the lord's supper is for those who are forsaking all known sin because it's in first corinthians that paul says if you eat that unworthily you die because sinners traipsing into the presence of a holy god is the biggest oxymoron in the universe saints by calling we are to pursue pure and holy lives that's what he's telling them in the second sentence number three they're called Saints by calling. Calling. We may not like the theology. We may get our feathers bristled by the theology. We know that there are people who abuse the theology, but that doesn't make it untrue. God calls. God called them to be saints. Why Sosthenes? Why not the next man? Why Aquila, Priscilla, who are apparently walking with Jesus by the time Paul shows up in the city, God calls. Adrian Rogers says, uh, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. And they are called by God and called to pursue holiness in Christ. Fourth and finally, he says here that they are prayerful with all who call upon the name of Jesus. Do you see that? All who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus. So first, they're positionally holy. They're to be practically holy because God called them and they are to call, they already are, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. But do you see what he does? He doesn't say, hey, you, you, all, you, you Corinthians, y'all are really good at prayer. Do you see what he does? With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus. Do you see what he's doing? Unity. You're not just to be unified in your little local church. Of course you should be because there's one Jesus. But you also have to be unified with all the people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus everywhere. Because he's their Lord and ours. One Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all. Contact with God, communion with God in Christ, that's the only way to be made more and more progressively holy. You must call on Jesus if you're going to be a saint, a holy one, pursuing practical holiness, communion with Christ as beloved children of God. That is spending time with God the Father, spending time with our Redeemer, fueled and filled by the person and power of the Holy Spirit, That's the highest privilege of our redemption. You may know this, but this is one of the only verses in the whole Bible that endorses prayer to Jesus. You do know that Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. And it's only right that in our prayer meeting earlier this morning, as far as I remember, every single person addressed their prayer to our Father. That's perfectly appropriate. It should be the predominant pattern. But here we have a verse that says we call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer to Jesus is certainly appropriate. As I said, it's one of the few explicit verses endorsing prayer directed to Jesus. Others are Acts 7 and 1 Corinthians 16 and Revelation 22 and Hebrews from front to last talks about Jesus as our high priest. We go to him, not any other man, to make us right with God and give us access to God. He's the only mediator, 1 Timothy 2. Clear emphasis in Scripture, though, is that prayer should be directed to the Father, what Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, our Father which art in heaven. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. But in every true prayer, now get this please, because this will be a powerful tonic in the hand of the Holy Spirit to help us. 
in all true prayer, all three persons of the Godhead are intimately involved. Aided by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Bringing God glory. Graham Cole said in an article he wrote, he's a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School professor, Christian praying exhibits the very structure of the Gospel. Jesus stands at the center as the mediator, the Father as the addressee, and the Spirit as the enabler. So can you pray to Jesus? Of course you can. But let me suggest, if this is the predominant way we pray, we may lose something of the enormous importance. We may lose sight of the glorious Gospel with the Father as the architect of our salvation, the Son as the achiever, and the Spirit as the applier. So you see in prayer, we address the triune God. Why why are we so prayerless? Now just a minute ago at the beginning of the sermon, you probably didn't have too much trouble thinking of a problem or two in this church. We have plenty. The question is not why do we have so many problems. The question is, in the midst of any problem, why are we so prayerless? Is there any other solution that you know of that will actually remedy the heart issue that's beneath the surface problem? Why are we so prayerless? Is it because we have no real idea what to pray? The old hymn writer said it well. Have we no words? Is that why we don't pray? Have we no words? Ah, think again. Words flow apace when you complain and fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, our cheerful song would oftener be hear what the Lord has done for me. Teach us to pray. Paul clearly hinted by inviting Sosthenes to be named in verse 1 that we're to be unified with each other as he explicitly says here in prayer, their Lord and ours. Union with one another in the throne room of God in prayer based on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this almost brings us to the end of our God-centered greeting, but third and finally... with God's kindness. Not only God's messengers, and not only to God's church, but so God-centered, meaning it's filled with God's kindness. That's verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's favorite way to greet the churches in his letters. Almost every letter that Paul writes begins this way, grace to you. And almost every letter he writes ends this way, grace be with you, which should trigger us to realize The way God's grace comes to us is through His Word. Grace to you. Grace be with you. Bracketing the Word of God. Grace to you, Corinthians. What do you mean, Paul? Here's 16 chapters. Grace be with you, Corinthians. Without the Word of God, we won't understand the grace of God or at best, we'll distort or be tempted to abuse His grace, turn it into license or legalism, which is anti-grace. But He wanted the church to have grace and peace. This again is an Old Testament illusion. Jesus Christ has a name called Prince of Peace. And in the Old Testament, the way the brethren would greet each other as they passed on the pathways, going back and forth through the cities, of Israel is they would say, Shalom. Peace be with you. Still happens today. Modern day Israel. Shalom. Paul's saying to them, all God's grace and His shalom. But do you see how they get it? The Lord Jesus Christ. Just skim through the passage and see how many times in the first nine verses the word Lord is used. You can't have peace if you're your own God. You can't have it. Do you want God's grace? Do you want God's peace? Bring yourself under the reign of the King of the universe. And then you'll have peace. But as long as you're calling the shots and as long as you're holding the bridle, 
As long as you're sitting in the cockpit and in the driver's seat of your life, it doesn't matter if you ask Jesus to ride shotgun or to come along for the trip with you. He's not coming. He's the Lord. He drives. And as you have Him as Lord, so also in the midst of challenging circumstances, and Corinth had them, right in the first few sentences, you can also have peace. Well, because you guys are so patient, and because even after all this time, uh, many of you still love me, I'm not going to subject you to the remainder of the sermon, but I am going to say a few things about application from Paul's prayer in verses 4 to 9. God-centered greetings, gospel-centered praying, and I'm especially sensitive, for what it's worth, to the people back there keeping all y'all's kids. <laughs> all right? So here we go. God-centered greetings leads into gospel-saturated praying. Let me just show you what's here and then draw out a few points for your prayerful consideration. Verses 4 to 8. Gospel-saturated praying that is full of thanksgiving. I thank my God, verse 4. Verse 5, filled with gospel confidence that in everything you were enriched in Jesus. That saturated with gospel hopefulness, verses 6-8, through eight, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, you are not lacking any good gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who also will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord. So do you see He's thankful in verse 4? Full of confidence in verse 5? Saturated with hope in verse 6? and radically God-centered as the base of it all in verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful, and He will do it. In verse 4, I thank my God always. You see, Paul had been given a thankful heart. Had he just heard a negative report about these people? Yes. Is the first thing he indicates to them how disappointed he is with them? No. The first thing he says, the first thing he says to the people who send the man who risked his life to bring them the gospel, the first thing he says is, I thank God for you. Can you try to say that to somebody who disappoints you every once in a while? I thank God for you. He's full of thankfulness because he had heard the Lord teach him deep in his heart that in all things we are to give thanks. And he wrote with his own quill in another place, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul's heart was thankful for these people. He loved them. And if you love them, it will be indicated in the way you speak to them, even when they disappoint you greatly. Why did he give thanks to God for them? Don't miss this. Not because of them. Not because of them. Because of God. I thank God for you because verse 4, God gave you grace. Because verse 4, God gave you Jesus. Do you see how God-centered this prayer of gospel thanks is? And in verse 5, His confidence flows out of the same source. You were enriched in Him in everything. Everything? Everything? He qualifies that because in Corinth, the issues were very obvious. So he says, everything, which is passive, second person, plural, enriched. It happened to, not you, it happened to y'all. You didn't do it, it happened to you. But it didn't happen to you by yourself, it happened to y'all. How were y'all enriched? Again, second person, plural, aorist, passive, you were enriched in, verse 5, all speech and all knowledge. Guess what Corinth boasted of? Oratory skill. Guess what Paul wrote to Corinth? I didn't come to you with persuasive words of wisdom. I came to you with the power of the gospel. All knowledge. They boasted of being the proudest of the proud in their intellect. And they had all the temples, all the shrines of all the gods to prove it. They were proud people. But Paul says to them, guess what? You've already, all of you, all of you have already been lavishly endowed, that's enriched, with all speech and all knowledge. You don't need anything else. Stop looking out there for your sources of satisfaction. You have Him and His name is 
Jesus. Third, His hope for them. Look in verse 6, 7, and 8. He says that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. What does that word mean? This word means confirmed that the truth of the Gospel that the Apostle Paul declared to them was confirmed in them by the Holy Spirit. Meaning, the Spirit attended the preaching of the Gospel. Not everybody believed. Go read Acts 18. Not everybody believed. But the Holy Spirit pierced like a dart the hearts of those that God was calling to Himself through the foolishness of the message of the Gospel preached. And it was confirmed in them. That means they testified to their embrace of Jesus Christ as their Lord. They gave confirmation that their hope was Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to them, including eternal life. It was Jesus and Jesus alone, and they confirmed that testimony, and God confirmed it by His Spirit in them. But notice this hope. Verse 7, you're not lacking any gift. None. What do you not have that you need? Church at Corinth, and could we say church at Memphis? Church in this little bitty gathering place? What do you lack? Or can you go to the rest of the sentence? Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awaiting how? Eagerly. Do you want to know what will be the death knell, like the axe at the root of the problems in any church? Do you want to know what the death knell will be? Look up from here, look out to there, until your heart burns like an inferno with deep passion for Jesus to come back. If you can see Him to the point that you eagerly await His return, it puts everything else in the right context. Awaiting eagerly, present, middle, participle, accusative, masculine, plural, I'm saying that to you so that I can tell you that I actually know that that word's translated the right way. Plural. Present. Plural. Present. We, right now, are looking to Jesus. That's Paul's solution! That's the answer. We look for His return, and I love this word, eagerly. Hebrews 9 says Jesus is coming back, but He's coming back for a select group of people. Are you on this train? Hebrews 9.28 Jesus, having been offered one time to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for Him. That's who He's coming back for. And Paul says to the church, He's all we have. And He's all we need. But the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, oh man. Verse 8, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much there. Every Old Testament prophet, every single Old Testament prophet talked about the day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's grabbing 39 books of the Old Testament. He's dumping them into the little church at Corinth. And he's saying, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's going to be a, a day of terror and a day of great judgment on many. But we eagerly await that day. Because then we'll be dressed in His righteousness. We'll be stripped of all of our sin. We'll be having the capacity of our depravity removed from us with surgical precision. There will be no impediment between us and our God. And instead of the day of the Lord, it's the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 9. Oh man. This is the main point of the passage. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we confidently know that we're going to make it to the end? It's not because we're good at believing the gospel. Certainly not good 
not because we're good at preaching the gospel. It's because God is faithful. God is faithful. Paul's saying to this church at Corinth, take your confidence out of yourself. Take your confidence out of your favorite preacher. Stop the stupid popularity contest. Stop all the schisms with the spiritual gifts. Look away from yourself for just a moment and look again at our faithful God. He called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He opens there because He wants them to know before He starts dealing with the details and there ain't a toe in the house that doesn't get stepped on. He wants them to know before He starts dealing with the details, He already believes God has saved them and will finish the work. But, if you're not going to fight for fidelity to the God who is faithful in the pursuit of holiness personally and the pursuit of unity corporately, then you're not one of the ones that He's faithfully working in. And He's not going to mince any words about that when we get later in this book. Paul touches each of the main themes in the book generally in his opening paragraph so that they will not wonder what he thinks about their salvation. He's already touched unity. He's already touched purity. He's already touched the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who is the one coming back on the day of the Lord. He's touched all the major themes in the first eight verses, but he wants them to know that he believes that they are the genuine article. They are true Christians. Verse 2, they're saints. Verse 2, they're prayerful. Verse 2, they're thankful that they received grace. Verse 4, they have all speech and knowledge because they've been enriched in Jesus. Verse 5, they have the testimony of Christ confirmed in them. Verse 6, they don't lack any gift. Verse 7, they're eagerly eagerly awaiting the revelation of Jesus. Verse 8 and 9, God's going to keep them to the end blameless because he's faithful. He believes they're true Christians. Paul rests his hope for the health of the church on God, not on people. On God, not on people. God is faithful He called you, by the way, that word's plural also. He called y'all. And if you don't like who he's picking, good news, you're not in charge. God called y'all plural to what? If you just got a little bit of energy left to hear a sentence, I promise you it's the highest privilege in the universe. God is faithful who called y'all into what God has enjoyed for eternity. Fellowship with His Son. You get Jesus. He's the sum total salary package for Christianity. And if you don't want Christ, you don't want Christianity. Our greatest need is a greater view of God. A thousand evils and hardships would vanish vaporize in a millisecond if the church would again have her gaze transfixed on our all-glorious and all-great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And if you want problems, keep them. If you want Jesus, you can't have them. Take your pick. If you can stomach it, if your spiritual palate can taste the sweet nectar, of God's immutable faithfulness. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Just be reminded that that faithfulness of God doesn't depend on whether or not we're faithful. Even if we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2, God is faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And He says you're called into fellowship with His Son. I do promise after several pre-warnings that I'm actually closing. Called into There's a thousand part sermon series in the word fellowship. Called into koinonia with his son. Koinonia. Holy Spirit filled communion. The third person of the Trinity dancing His mighty self in between all our relationships. Beautifying us with more and more conformity into the image of Christ. Causing our love for one another to be 
taken like a syringe out of God's heart and His love for us. This is Spirit-empowered fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Spirit-filled church is to be a Jesus-centered church. He is the epicenter of our koinonia. And if Christ is not central, what are we doing? And if Christ is central, how could you possibly not want to belong to that? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you. And He will also bring it to pass. Challenges in Corinth? Meet Jesus. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. We'll sing that rich hymn as we are singing. You are invited to respond either by remaining seated in prayerfulness or by participation in the Lord's table. We'll ask for a church member to offer a prayer of gospel thanks in every group that gathers for the Lord's Supper. Join me at the throne of grace. Oh, Father, we thank You that You are faithful. And we know You are because You have put forward the greatest possible demonstration of Your faithfulness. You purposed to save a people, and that would have been something wonderful, but you carried out that plan in the most unimaginable, indescribable way possible. You gave heaven's favorite. We don't have to wonder if you're faithful. You said you would do something, and you did it at the greatest possible cost. And somehow, for some reason that we will never know, <laughs> You have included us among the number who belong to the Redeemer. How can it be that grace found out me? Oh Lord, how absurd is it that any other person or any other agenda or any other item would take His rightful place of honor in this congregation? We pray that week after week as we walk through 1 Corinthians that Jesus would be elevated all the more and that our eyes would be fixed on Him. And Lord, we do ask that You would put the death nail to our problems and schisms and divisions and all the things that the enemy would love to do, even unwittingly to us, and use us in our way of thinking to be a distraction from the Gospel. God forbid, let Jesus be exalted here. We ask this for Your glory in His name. Amen.